Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Kristen Ulmer. Kristen was recognized as the best female big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years. Since retiring as an athlete in 2003, she spent the next 15 years studying intently with a Zen master. Kristen is now a thought leader, master facilitator, and fear specialist who radically challenges existing norms around the deeply misunderstood emotion of fear. She is the author of the book, The Art of Fear, Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do Instead. Kristen, can you tell me a little bit about your background, the work you do, and how you got into it? I was a professional extreme athlete. I used to risk my life for a living. <laughs> I jumped off cliffs. I was a professional big mountain extreme skier, best in the world for 12 years. And people always wonder what the word extreme means. And to me and to most people actually in the business, it means whenever you're risking your life. Like if you fall, you die. If you make a mistake, you die. And so that's how I made my living for a really long time jumping off cliffs on skis, and I was considered fearless. Um, I was called fearless by the media. They almost seemed more intrigued by my ability to be fearless than my skiing itself. And I got to the end of my ski career, though, and I started doing some research, for lack of a better word, and I realized that, no, I wasn't fearless. I was repressing fear in order to ski the way I wanted to. And it started causing a lot of problems in my life. And so in order to heal my own relationship with fear, um, I started studying with a Zen master for 16 years now. And then I started teaching about fear. And now I am considered a fear expert. That's absolutely amazing. When you say you're repressing fear... Can you talk a little bit more about that? Were you repressing other emotions? Like what what was happening? Well, fear is the big one. If you repress emotions, it always kind of starts with fear because beneath the anger is fear, beneath jealousy is fear, beneath unworthiness is fear, beneath powerlessness, um, beneath sadness even is fear. Like somebody that's really depressed, for example, a lot of that has to do with the repression of fear. So they're all kind of tied together. And fear really is the big one. It's the primary emotion beneath all of it. And uh, it goes back to, you can see the origination of fear in the first single cell amoeba. You know, if, if you were to expose a single cell amoeba to fire, for example, it would move away from the fire even though it has no arms, no legs, no spinal column, um, no brain, like that's the origination of fear. And so fear is such a huge primary part of who we are. And um, 99% I've learned of all professional extreme athletes who you think would be the poster children for what to do about fear. They seem to have no fear. They seem to manage fear really well. We all repress fear. Uh, to do what we do almost exclusively and uh, and in just normal general public not extreme athletes same thing Um, it's because we're taught to do this by society like when I first made it on the US ski team and I was just in way over my head and the coaches were saying oh well you need to put fear out of your mind you need to take three deep breaths you need to visualize success all of these things that we do to not deal with our fear that's called the repression of fear and it works You know, I seemingly would not have to feel or deal with fear temporarily, but I find that after about 10 years of doing that, 
um, your life just starts to go south. And it shows up in a variety of ways in extreme athletes. Like you hear about athletes that after 10 years, they're burnt out. They're having panic attacks. They're depressed. They have insomnia, um, anxiety disorders. For me, what I had was PTSD because I had seen a lot of my friends die in the mountains. And I ha was burnt out. Because when you fight a war against fear your whole life, it depletes your resources. It's just exhausting. Any war that you have going on in your unconscious mind is going to burn you out. And the war that we have against fear is definitely uh, suspiciously going to um, burn you out and, and deplete all your resources, as you can imagine. And I also started having a lot more injuries. Um, I see this a lot in ski racers. After 10 years, you think, oh, they're starting to have a lot of injuries because they're getting older or they're losing focus. What actually is happening is because they're not dealing with their fear, they become really rigid, stoic. And when you're dealing with a sport as violent as skiing, professional big mountain extreme skiing, then you cannot be a rigid person. You're just going to break. So that's what started happening to me. And, and so uh, I, I actually had to quit because I just couldn't take any of these PTSD, burnout, and injury problems anymore. And uh, so I, that's why I quit. Is and then I figured out the reason why I had all these problems was because of the repression of fear. I mean, the stuff that you're talking about, I find so fascinating. And I have so many more additional questions. One of the first things I want to ask about is you describe PTSD. And I think a lot of people are listening to this. When they hear PTSD, they think about soldiers coming back from, from war. But this can manifest in lots of different ways. How did it manifest in you? How did you know that you had PTSD? I think that we're going to see a lot more extreme athletes, especially the ones that are genuinely extreme, like out there risking their lives, like the climbers, for example, where a lot of their friends are dying in the mountains. They're watching them die. Um, certainly in big mountain extreme skiing, there's a lot of deaths. I saw a number of friends die in the mountains. I also saw dozens and dozens of uh, friends getting crippled for life. And then personally, I had, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I had... Uh, probably 50 near-death experiences. My husband made me count them once. Wow. And I, I finally did this in the middle of the night. And after just furiously writing for 10 minutes, I came up with 50 of them. And then I stopped. I'm sure there were more if I put some thought into it. 50 near-death experiences. And so, um, you know, going to war and, and becoming an extreme athlete starts with a choice. Like, okay, I'm going to take on a very high-risk lifestyle by choice. And uh, I got paid for it. Soldiers get paid for it. What happens in between is very, very different. Of course, war is just soul sucking and awful. And, you know, going out and expressing yourself in the mountains can be a lot of fun and really, um, I mean, they're both an adventure, but one is definitely um, more hedonistic and joyful than the other. But at the end of a soldier's life, at the end of an extreme athlete's uh, career, not the end of the soldier's life, but soldier's career as well, um, oftentimes what we see are PTSD. And it's not just soldiers, it's, it's anyone. I, I looked at a statistic recently, 8% of Americans struggle with PTSD. And that's just the ones that we know about. And not all these people are soldiers or extreme athletes. I mean, anybody that goes through any kind of trauma and mind you life is filled with trauma like this is that's just part of our birthright like we are going to come in contact with horrible people horrible situations we're going to get mugged we're going to have a, an abusive relationship like these things are all going to happen to us we're going to see a horrible accident 
Um, it's not a matter of if, or it's a matter of when, like this is just part of our lives, but however you deal with the emotions, in particular the fear, after going through those traumatic experiences determines whether or not you get PTSD or not. Can you explain what that means? Well, we all say, you know, the PTSD experts, that it's a fear injury or it's an emotional injury. And it shows up emotionally for people. And it shows up differently for everyone. Like somebody may have intense nightmares. Other person, other people will just, when they hear a bang, will kind of freak out. Others just have a hard time sleeping in general. Others just have a hard time getting along with their wives or their children. It shows up in a million different ways for a million different people. But what PTSD is when you go through a difficult traumatic emotional experience and you feel a lot of intense emotions, fear, anger, sadness, and you don't know how to deal with them properly. And this is usually taught since childhood how to deal with your emotions. Like dad says, oh, be a man, don't be afraid or you're not allowed to be angry or, um, you know, turn that frown upside down if you feel sadness. Like emotional repression is taught when we're younger. I call it uh, emotion shaming. And, and so however you're taught to deal with your emotions when you're a child determines later on whether you struggle with PTSD or not. Like, for example, um, somebody could get mugged at gunpoint and one person who knows how to deal with their emotions properly comes home and feels the emotions and it makes them really feel alive and, and come to terms with the realities of life. And it winds up being the most interesting thing that happened to them all week. Like I had some friends who went to Paris and they went to the Louvre, they went to the Eiffel Tower, and then they got mugged at gunpoint and they came home. And what do you think that they talked about? They talked about the mugging and it, it, their eyes lit up and they said, oh my gosh, the guy was crazy. We think he was on drugs. And, you know, they, they, uh, they come alive with their emotions. Whereas somebody else who goes through a different, difficult, traumatic, emotional experience, um, they come home, they don't want to feel their emotions. And so they shut down, they shut themselves down, they go numb. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. They try to just they have like the this, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to feel this, I don't want to feel this, I don't want to feel this. And that's what creates the PTSD. And um, let me just give you a story from my own ski career that kind of illustrates this. But um, there's a thing called you fall, you die, ski descent. And I was, uh, like I said, I had over 50 of them. And one of them was I was skiing a you fall, you die descent for the cameras once. I was being filmed. And uh, I was going like 50 miles an hour. And the reason why it was you fall, you die is there were cliffs below and then a bottomless crevasse at the bottom of this face. So I, I couldn't fall. And it was very steep, 50 degrees. Like I wouldn't be able to stop my crash. And next thing you know, I don't know what happened. I was taking a hard left-hand turn and something happened. Next thing you know, I'm crashing violently. Immediately got pitched off a 30-foot cliff. The, the cameraman, I found out later, turned the camera off because he thought that he didn't want to film me dying. He had made a decision a long time ago that he wouldn't do that. And next thing you know, I'm just cartwheeling violently towards this bottomless crevasse. And thank God my skis stayed on. But I just thought, no, you know, and somehow I came up 10 feet before the edge taking another le radical left-hand turn at, at like an 60 miles an hour at this point. It was like this crazy athletic moment in my life where I pulled it off, you know, before near destruction. And I 
skied down to the bottom and I, I mean, it was as close a call as it gets. And my friend Aaron was down at the bottom. Poor Aaron. He was, he watched the whole thing. And I get down there and he was crouched in a ball, just sobbing. He wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't talk to me. He was just sobbing because he thought that he was about to watch his friend Kristen die. And I just stood above him and I felt absolutely nothing. You know, that's the precursor to PTSD. You go through something that traumatic and you feel nothing, like that's going to cause some problems later on. I definitely hear you. And um, I've, I've experienced PTSD. I've been suppressing things for a while and gave myself a breakdown. And, uh, and after that experience, like I just had gone through it. And um, so I definitely relate. And I've talked about this multiple times in the podcast. And I find it fascinating to hear how well you express some of these experiences and seem to have processed them now. I'm curious when you talk about, like for example, uh, be, being numb uh, in that moment and how that sort of conditioning, you'd conditioned, sounds like you'd conditioned or society or coaches or whatever had conditioned you to sort of suppress your emotions and create that numbness. Where did it show up in other aspects of your life? I think that because my life revolved so much around skiing for so long and my whole world was skiing, I didn't really notice it anywhere else. Um, you know, somebody, I had a client who uh, lived in New York. She's a very famous doctor and she was fearless as a doctor. You know, she was in this man's world and she um, was very, very successful, very famous. But then she would go skiing. And she was an excellent skier, but she just, she was terrified out there. And oftentimes when you repress fear in one area of your life, so you can be fearless at work, for example, then you take it home and you just have issues with your family um, or you have issues with a sport or you have issues just in relationship. Like you see a lot of, uh, of people who are crippled in relationships, like they, they don't feel comfortable taking a risk, asking somebody out. And so they remain not in a relationship their whole lives, but then they're very successful in their career. Like, what is that all about? For me, I, um, I was a very hard person. I was very arrogant, very stoic in my relationships. Um, I was just so adamant about being fearless that in order to maintain that, not while skiing, um, I think it was just really hard to have an intimate relationship with me back in those days as well. Um, I just, it was like a, a severe overcompensation that if I dropped it for even a moment, I would be afraid that it would go away. Now, the thing is, there is a huge payoff for being rigid and stoic and, and repressing emotions. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, it works. It makes it so we don't have to feel difficult emotions. And, and we've, we've been talking about PTSD, and PTSD doesn't have to come after seeing a traumatic incident, just even something minor, like uh, somebody saying something mean to you, a stranger. Or, I mean, I would say that, I, I don't know the statistics on this, but a lot of the soldiers that come home with PTSD, a lot of them did not experience traumatic you know, on the ground, like friends getting killed or anything. A lot of these people are um, desk junkies, you know, it's just 
it, it's uh, it, but I think that emotional repression is specifically taught in the military. You know, when you go to basic training, the image of the drill sergeant just screaming in the soldier's face while they stand there stoically, I mean, that's hard to miss. And so I think that it's taken to the next level in military training. And uh, not a lot of these soldiers are coming home having experienced combat, but they still have PTSD. And so back to just uh, citizens in general, people that are not in the military, you know, depends on how you were raised. Um, you know, just having somebody say something mean to you once can result in PTSD. And that's why so many of us have it. And so at this point, I guess the big picture of what we're talking about is just emotional repression. And PTSD is one way in which that shows up in our lives. There's also depression. Panic attacks is a sign of emotional repression. Um, feeling numb all the time. Uh, insomnia is emotional repression because those emotions that are undealt with during the day will get really clever at, at hijacking your mind and running their agenda, especially fear in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep and on and on and on. Like 7.5 billion different people, there's 7.5 billion different symptoms for the repression of emotion. And it's it really literally is harming us so thoroughly mentally, psychologically, physically, emotionally, um, that it's a really important thing to be talking about. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I experienced all those things. I experienced panic, panic attacks, numbness, uh, trouble with intimacy, like all these things are definitely things that I experienced as well. And it's funny because as a coach, people ask me like, well, what do you, like, what is the biggest thing that inhibits people? And, or, or what's the biggest thing that sort of holds people back and they're looking for like a soundbite or something simple? And I usually say an anxiety is, but if I pull back that, um, that layer, it's trauma. Like it's trauma that causes us to disconnect and that can be small traumas. Um, like you said, somebody makes a comment to us and we keep hearing it in our mind and it affects our behavior and our subconscious is trying to process it while we're asleep and we wake up to it and manifest in all kinds of different ways. Or it can be major traumas. And, um, but I, I mean, I definitely hear the things that you're saying. Something else I want to ask you about. You can, can I reflect yeah. on that for a yeah. second though? Cause I don't want to let that one go. Cause this is really important. So trauma is, as I said before, part of our birthright. Like you are going to go through traumatic experience, experiences, not, you know, something hasn't gone wrong when, you know, that something has gone right. Like the universe is designed for us to go through traumatic experience. And it, and actually it's here to um, not inhibit our growth, but actually help our growth. And if you go through a traumatic experience and it becomes the very thing that um, it's kind of like pruning a, a bush, like you you uh, trim a bush, right? And it, at first it looks smaller and, and depleted, but then it grows back stronger than before. It's like this trauma is actually supposed to help us grow. And if you're willing to look for the lessons in the trauma, um, have the trauma be your teacher, if you're willing to feel the emotions that come from the trauma, then those emotions are the very thing that helps you come alive. Like back to my friends that went to Paris and got mugged at gunpoint, right? That was the most exciting, most invigorating thing that happened to them all year. <laughs> and the thing that they learned the most from, you know, that they yeah. thought it was fascinating, right? But if you don't deal with the emotions and if you're kind of repulsed by the trauma, repulsed by the emotions that come from the trauma, shrink away from the lessons that are there 
then that actually is the biggest holdback, not the trauma itself. So our unwillingness to deal with the trauma in an honest way is what holds us back, not the trauma itself. I, I think that's an absolutely great point. One of the things that I've heard people talk and referenced at PST, PTSD, the way they've referenced it is as an incomplete experience. And um, we feel an emotion and we don't process it. I think and uh, how the body keeps score, one of the things he says is that when we experience a threat, the first thing that we do as human beings is uh, we look for our friends. Like we look, we try to find sort of help. Um, and if we can't do that, then we, we go into sort of fight or flight. And if we can't do that, we freeze. And if we watch animals um, and they're attacked, for example, like a deer is attacked by a mountain lion, then one of the things that the deer will do as a strategy is it will freeze. And um, if the lion starts to move away from it and it thinks it's dead or mortally injured, the deer might jump up and the first thing it does is shake and it shakes the trauma out of its body. And that came up as you were talking about the rigidity of your body while you were skiing. When you were saying that your body became rigid was that a consequence of constantly feeling under stress response or was it tied to the PTSD or is it tied to incomplete trauma? What, do you see where I'm going with this? Yes, it's a great question. So I don't think anybody's thought about fear more than I have. I mean, I've devoted my life to this. 33 years of either practical real world in the dirt experience or followed by 16 years of voraciously studying a Zen approach to fear and I've also done a ton of research working with thousands of clients, just facilitating them in the voice of fear. You don't know what that means, but basically brokering a conversation between them and their fear. And here's what I've learned. <laughs> so there's a lot, obviously. I wrote a whole book about it, The Art of Fear. But in the context of what you're talking about, um, we tend to think that the fear makes us act a certain way. And it does. But let's break it down like the, the uh, deer and the mountain lion. You know, an animals have a really simple relationship with fear and an honest one. So there's this thing called the amygdala, two almond-shaped nuggets at the top of the spine, determining safe or not safe. And all data is run through this primary um, filter. And if there's a perceived threat, it'll send a shot of discomfort called fear into the body and it's supposed to move into through and out of the body like water but the thing is to the amygdala everything's a perceived threat so that's why it's the primary filter too and so here's bambi you know all of a sudden there's some rustling in the bushes perceived threat sends a shot of discomfort called fear to the body we think fear is in our minds but really it's a discomfort in our bodies in its purest form so and then that leads to bambi perking right up and all of a sudden her hearing's better, her eyesight's better, you know, she's scanning the bushes, like totally present, sharp, focused, boom, it's a mountain lion, right? And then there's fight or flight. So she runs because she's a deer, right? She's not going to take on the mountain lion. Um, she's, just, she's not going to fight it. And, uh, and the, the whole freeze thing, I think, will come if the mountain lion actually gets Bambi, from what I've seen on those nature shows, right? Yes, exactly. That's another... Right. So that's another possible response. But I think initially it's just fight or flight. So she's running, she's running, she's running faster than she ever has in her life because Bambi plus fear equals super Bambi. Like fear is actually supposed to make us better athletes, not worse, if you have that kind of honest relationship with it. 
or you know take athletes athletics out of the picture make us better at business make us better in relationships make us better in anything fear is actually only here to help us be magnificent so let's say in my story bambi outruns the mountain lion right and she's fine and yes she's going to shake it off afterwards and any any residual fear and fear is actually supposed to run its course in our bodies between 10 and 90 seconds this has been studied by science you know, that whole norepinephrine, cortisol, all of that adrenaline release is gone after 10 to 90 seconds. Or it sticks around as long as the perceived threat is there. If Bambi's cornered by the mountain lion for an hour, like it's still going to be there. Same with us. So that's a really simple reaction to fear. Humans, we're a lot more complicated than animals. And we're made more complicated by our big brains, our big sexy brains, which are great at figuring out how to build bridges and, and put a man on Mars and all of that. Like our brains are great for a lot of things, but when it comes to certain things, it's a great tool, but a terrible master, like trying to figure out love, trying to figure out emotions, what to deal with emotions. It has its limitations. We'll just say. And so what has happened in our culture is that there's a whole extra step now being human in dealing with our fear. So there's a perceived threat. Oh my gosh, boss wants to have a conversation with me. You know, the shit has hit the fan, right? So sends a shot of fear to the body. And then we start thinking about the fear and try to figure out what to do with it. And emotional intelligence is our cult in our culture is actually seen as our ability to understand and control our emotions. So we try to understand our fear, you know, okay, what does he want to talk to me about? Is it as bad as I think it is? And then we try to talk ourselves out of, out of feeling the fear. We try to control the fear. We try to hide the fear. We don't want to have anybody see us sweat, right? And so um, then the action, the fight or flight action that results at the end is we're no longer fighting or fleeing the mountain lion or the boss or the situation. We're now fighting or fleeing the fear itself. And that's where all the language comes from. You want to conquer, you want to overcome your fear, right? You want to put it out of your mind. So fear has become the new enemy. Fear has become the new mountain lion that we're fighting or fleeing from. And that is causing us a lot of problems. And this is explicitly taught by our parents, by our teachers, by self-help gurus, by psychologists, by fear and anxiety experts even. You know, everybody is teaching some sort of variation of you want to control your emotions, you want to fight them, you want to use your intellect like a sword to rationalize them away, you want to take three deep breaths and replace the fear with calm. All these things that we do work great, otherwise they wouldn't be taught. You feel better, right? You feel less fear, you go into the meeting, the boss doesn't see that you're afraid, you, you know, have a little swagger, you're fine, you got this, right? Um, but you have just inadvertently repressed fear to get through that moment with your boss. And then you go home and all of a sudden you're not getting along with your wife. And all of a sudden you do this over time, you have insomnia, you know, over more time you have panic attacks, you have anxiety disorders. Um, anxiety is fear. It's exactly the same thing. Specifically, it's recirculating undealt with fear that's trapped in your system. So the, the, the payoff of trying to understand and control and think through your emotions and control them, all of that, is that you get to appear fearless to your boss in that difficult meeting. But the consequence is after, I would say, 10 years tops, you now either 
have these problems, the panic attacks, anxiety disorders, PTSD, depression, insomnia, and on and on, and you don't know where they're coming from, but these are the consequences of, of uh, kind of using our intellect to deal with our emotions and trying to control and understand them. I mean, I totally connect with it. So what, what do you suggest as the alternative? I'm glad that we're tipping over the edge here because, you know, it's really easy to talk about the problem, but then coming up with a solution, especially when we're so used to repressing our emotions, is, is important. Um, I have spent a lot of my life trying to dissect where all these problems are coming from. I mean, just make no mistake that if you have a problem in your life, especially the ones that I outlined, either the repression of fear either has everything to do with it or something to do with it. And it could be psychological, emotional, uh, physical. You know, like if you stop up the emotions in your body, you, your, your body becomes stuck kind of like a... I see emotions as water flowing. And if you kind of back up water, um, you create like a cesspool, like stagnant water is ripe for bacteria, illness, cancer, all that to thrive. Like physically, it's a really bad idea to stop up the flow of emotions as well because you just create the ideal host environment for a compromised immune system, et cetera. So it's, it's a really, really big deal to repress emotions. It messes up us up like nothing else. What to do about it is we've got to learn how to feel our emotions in an honest way. Um, I've said before that emotional intelligence is seen in our culture. It's written about, there's a whole bunch of books out there called Emotional Intelligence, and they say that you don't want to repress your emotions, but then they also kind of say that emotional intelligence is our ability to understand intellectually our emotions and control them. I say emotional intelligence is our ability to feel our emotions in an honest way and have them help us come alive. And the key to getting out of these problems is the first part, feel our emotions in an honest way. So emotions are meant to be de uh, dealt with emotionally, not intellectually. Like if you have an emotional problem, going to a therapist and talking and thinking about it is not going to solve it because you're using your intellect to deal with your emotions. What is going to help is if you go to some sort of therapist where, you, where they can help broker um, your experience of going into your body and feeling whatever it is that you feel without trying to control it, get rid of it, let it go. Um, one of the worst things that you can do with your emotions is try to let them go. I, I know that that's going to raise a lot of hairs in the back of people's necks, right? Explain what you mean by that. Well, let's look at fear, for example, as an individual in your life, like a person in your life. And let's say it's your roommate. It could be your spouse, your child. Um, let's actually, let's go with child for now, because a lot of people have been repressing emotions for such a long time, maybe since the age of four, the first time mom says, don't be afraid, or there's nothing to be afraid of. We lock fear in the basement. It's like a child that we've locked in the basement. And it's down there with no food, no water, no love, no sunshine. Everybody hates him. Um, and it's, it's trying to get your attention. And it feels sad down there. It feels angry. Maybe, you know, 95% of what, what we know is modern anger is undealt with fear locked in the basement. 
Um, and it's just going to be banging pots and pans down there and setting fires and, and hijacking your mind in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep. Like it will find a way to get out. So if you say, okay, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't lock fear in the basement. You've got to learn how to feel it. It's a step in the right direction. You need to accept that fear is, is normal and natural. You don't want to put it down there. Like that, that's great. That's great language. But if there's a comma after that sentence, and then you say, but you don't want to let it control you. You don't, you don't want to let it get the better of you. It's still disrespectful to that child. It's kind of like, if you're my fear, and just feel how this feels when I talk to you like this. So we'll go through four different levels. So the first level is what's normally taught, like, hey, fear, you're my fear, right? Okay. Yeah, your name's Christopher, but I'm calling you my fear for this moment. Okay. How does this feel? Okay, I want nothing to do with you. You're an enemy. Um, I need to get rid of you. Uh, you're the thing that's holding me back from being the person I want to be. Um, until I can get rid of you, I'm never going to be the person I want to be. So how does it make you feel to hear that? Not very good. Right. So you're going to retaliate. You're going to fight back. And so the step in the right direction is accepting you. Hey, fear, this is level two. I accept you. Um, I accept that you're a normal part of my life. Um, Yes, I'm not going to put you in the basement. Let's spend some time together. But I'm not going to let you get the better of me. I'm still going to control you. And I'm going to let you go. Like, I'm going to go out and do something. I'm going to apply for this job that I'm slightly underqualified for. And you're not invited to that job interview. You know, I'm willing to let you in my life a little bit. But, you know, I'm still going to control you. How does that make you feel? I mean, it doesn't feel that great either. I mean, it feels right. a, little bit, a little bit better than the first situation. But, like, it still feels like... I'm sort of hiding something that it's not, that I would be right. hiding something. Yeah. Right. And it feels um, like I'm ashamed of you. Yeah. Like I, um, I'm still trying to hide you. I'm trying to control you. I mean, have you ever tried to control anybody successfully in your life? Yeah, it <laughs> Does work. anybody like to be controlled? It doesn't work. Um, how about if I say to you, okay, I'm going to let you go. Now, you're with me every moment of every single day in nearly every interaction we have because to the amygdala, everything is a perceived threat. So when I say, I'm going to let you go, I'm going to take three deep breaths and I'm going to breathe in calm and I'm going to breathe you out of my life. How does that feel? I mean, it feels a little bit better. Right. But it's like, imagine if we were uh, married, right? And you're my husband. And I'm like, okay, honey, Christopher, like, let's go uh, kiteboarding today. But once we get to the beach, you're out of here, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it feels better, but it still feels like denial or a form of rejection. Right. So if there's a comma after like, oh, fear is normal and natural, you have to accept that it's part of your life. And then there's a comma. And then the the psychologist or the expert says, okay, but you don't want to let it get the better of you. You want to control it. You want to let it go, right? It's still disrespectful to fear. It's like saying a child is a blessing. Now let's, let's lock her back in the basement. You know? It's still the same. It, it has a contradicting message. Like emotions are not meant to be let go of. They're meant to be juiced like an orange. They're meant to have you uh, here. They're here to help you come alive. Like fear is 
here to help you bring your A game to everything you do. Anger is here to help you right a wrong and be confident and certain. Sadness is here to break open your heart to love and compassion for other people. They're not meant to be let go of. They're meant to be tapped into. So this, this brings, and you know, we're going to get to the two levels soon and I'm going to tell everybody how to get there, but let's go back to my ski career for just a moment. So during my ski career, I did some things right by fear and I did some things wrong by fear. And I had a bit of a paradox going on. I both repressed and, um, fought fear to the extreme and I was really good at it but I also really loved feeling fear at this exact same time now can you love and hate something at the same time anybody that's married will tell you that yes yes you can (laughs) (laughs) so I both hated feeling fear and I loved feeling fear to the extreme and what I've learned I mean I've interviewed dozens of professional big mountain uh, excuse me dozens of professional extreme athletes I've interviewed Alex Honold, Conrad Anger. I don't know if these names mean anything to anybody. Scott Schmidt, Alex Honold, just free solo El Cap. Yeah, he's crazy. You know? Every time I look right. at, every time I see a picture of him climbing, I get scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every single time I look at it, I literally feel terror. I know. I, I don't I, even <laughs> to watch the movie because it's so stressful. Uh, that just came out. It's called Free Solo. But I spent 90 minutes interviewing him just about fear. And does he have a clue what he does with fear out there? Absolutely not. I had absolutely no clue that I was doing this during my ski career either, and I was considered fearless. What people like him, people like me, were doing out there is they enjoyed feeling fear. They enjoy feeling fear. And when you do that, when you have an intimate relationship with fear, it doesn't feel like fear at all. It just feels like focus and presence and aliveness. Um, it takes you into the zone and little else does like extreme sports are notorious for taking people into the zone. Why is that? Because these athletes are more willing to feel fear than most. And if you, you know, let's take it out of sports. If you look at businessmen and women, you know, who are doing big, big things in their lives, they're not doing it with the absence of fear. They enjoy feeling fear. They have an intimate relationship with fear and the fear is helping them bring their A game to everything they do. We get that wrong about fear. Fear is actually not a holdback. And this is probably the most important point I'm going to make. Fear is not a holdback in our lives. It's our misguided reaction to the fear that's the holdback. If you you resist the fear, this is the point. If you resist the fear, it's the resistance that's the awful feeling, not the fear itself. That awful feeling we associate with fear actually isn't fear. It's our resistance to fear. It's our, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to feel this. Like I had um, a flying trapeze school for a while. And I I would just sit and watch because I'm, you know, a fear expert. I'm just fascinated. I'm like obsessed with people's reaction to fear and have been for 33 years. So I would watch people go up the ladder. And of course, there's going to be fear. Fear climbing a 20-foot ladder, you're about to do a flying trapeze class, right? Stepping off the ledge. It's terrifying. It's a terrifying experience. It doesn't matter who you are. But the people that were in resistance to the fear, they're like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, you know, this feels awful. This feels awful. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to, no, no, no. It's that, that resistance that makes them climb back down the ladder. And they claim that the fear made them stop, but it's their resistance to feeling the fear that made them stop. But the people that embraced fear climbed the ladder. You know, they've 
felt really alive. They step off the platform. It winds up being one of the greatest moments of their year, if not their life. So when you embrace the fear, um, it's, it becomes one of the greatest experiences you have on planet Earth. When you resist the fear, that resistance becomes one of the worst experiences you have here on planet Earth. It's really that simple. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisman.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. So back to these four, two other layers. So you're my fear, right? So you're an emotion. You're meant to be felt. You're not meant to be thought about or talked about with a therapist. You're meant to be felt. So let's, you know, and, and maybe, maybe we should not pretend that you're a child and not pretend that you're a spouse because it gets a little weird when we do that from now on. But level, if level one is res, resistance to fear, level two is acceptance of fear, right? Step in the right direction. Level three is where you learn how to feel your fear. And that's a physically embodied experience. And it goes back to that book you're talking about, you know, The Body uh, Never Forgets, or what was the name of the book? How the Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, How the Body Keeps the Score. So that undealt with fear is kept in your body. You learn how to feel your fear versus talk and think about it or try to let it go or try to get rid of it in any way. You learn how to feel that fear. All of a sudden, that's true in emotional intelligence because it helps you kind of feel alive too. And then level four is the, the big one, the really good one, where you become intimate with that fear. So how you go, I've been talking for a while. Why don't I just pause for a second and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you. No, keep going. I, I was just going to ask, what does it mean to be intimate with one's fear? Well, right now in America, we have, and this is going to answer your question before, how do you go from a repressive to an inclusive relationship with fear? This is how you do it. Uh, you start a fear practice. And right now in America, we have gratitude practice, forgiveness practice, joy, love, all very beautiful practices, noble practices, but it's just leading us to more repression. It actually, you know, Gratitude practice. Like I look at that and it makes me so sad because it's one more way that people aren't dealing with their fear. I say gratitude practice should be step B. <laughs> step A is you got to go back and deal with the stuff that you won't normally look at. Um, whatever you won't look at is the key to freedom. Like 
if somebody has a problem in their life, if you have a gratitude practice or a calmness practice, you're going to feel better. But it's going to become harder and harder to feel better over time because you're still repressing and denying the negative, its rightful place in your life. Um, so you got to go back and deal with your fear, deal with your anger, deal with your sadness. They're here to help too. Have an honest relationship with them by starting a fear practice. If you have an anger issue, having an anger practice. If you have depression, have a depression practice. Um, what that looks like, I, I uh, have basically four steps that I do. Whenever I feel like there's something amiss about my life, um, and I could, I, let me give you a couple examples. Like I had some clients who were having a horrible time in their marriage. They're thinking of getting a divorce. It had just digressed. And they kept trying to go back to love, trying to go back to love. And I said, okay, you need to stop. Yes, I know you guys love each other, but you're not dealing with the underlying core issue. I mean, they were having the same fight over and over again for 30 years, right? And they kept trying to go back to love and, and they were never resolving the underlying issue. So to resolve the underlying issue, I had them start a fear practice. So what they did is they sat whenever they were having a conflict and they just went back and forth saying what they were afraid of. I'm afraid you don't find me attractive anymore. And then the husband would say, well, I'm afraid that you're going to leave me. And then the wife would say, well, I'm afraid that this is never going to be the relationship of my dreams. I'm afraid, you know, back and forth. They just identified all the fears that they had. And all of a sudden they could deal with the core issue in an honest way, which is they're scared shitless, right? They're, they were getting to the point where they were more afraid, afraid of staying versus going, right? Like, and, and you look at anyone that fear seems to be holding them back. Well, there's fear holding them back, like maybe somebody who uh, wants to leave their marriage. Like there's fear of going and all that implies, you know, leaving the kids. Um, what am I going to do about money? Um, how awkward that's going to be around their family. But there's also fear of staying and being stuck there, you know, still 10 years later, still in a bad marriage. You know, whatever the greater fear is wins. Like there's fear if you stay, there's fear if you go. There's fear everywhere. In every single corner and crevasse of every moment of every single day in every interaction of our entire lives, fear is going to be there. So wouldn't it make sense to have an honest relationship with that? And so that's what this couple did. And they just went back and forth whenever they were having conflict of all the things they were afraid of. And very, very quickly, their relationship turned around. Now, it's counterintuitive to do that, though. You know, like explore fear rather than try to nurture love. So another example is I was about to give my first speech after my book came out. And it was a very high profile speech. It was at the Bulletproof Conference. Dave Asprey was in front of a pretty important audience. I, you know, I'm a facilitator. I don't normally give speeches. And I, it was a 75 minute speech, right? I'm about to go on, on stage and talk for 75 minutes on the subjects of fear and anxiety, right? And I'm backstage and I'm practically having a panic attack, right? <laughs> I'm a little underprepared. So what I did is I went and hid. I had 10 minutes, right? I went and hid from other people. I went behind the building. 
And I had a two-minute fear practice that I did, which is I dealt with my fear in an honest way. And uh, what I did is I first acknowledged it was normal and natural to feel fear. I'm about to give a speech in front of an important audience. It's something that's a little out of my wheelhouse. And then the second thing is I did a body scan. I uh, identified what I was feeling, which was nervousness, which is another name for fear. And I felt it uh, in my chest, in my throat, and uh, it was strong, like a 10 out of 10. And then the third step is I identified, was I resisting it? Because the resistance is actually the problem, not the fear itself. And I realized that, yes, I was resisting it. I was in this place of like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to give this speech. This is awful. I don't, I just want to be home watching a movie with my husband. Like, why did I sign up for that? Right. <laughs> so I had the resistance. And I have an equation in my book, suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So my discomfort was a level 10. And my resistance is also a level 10. 10 times 10, that's a whole lot of suffering, right? So the resistance was the issue, not the discomfort of fear itself. You know, the, the discomfort of fear is innate. Of course, I'm going to feel fear if I'm about to give a speech, but I don't have to be resisting it. So I just spent a minute just feeling my resistance. So I just uh, said over and over again, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here until it ran its course. Like you don't want to resist the resistance too, right? <laughs> And then I had access to the discomfort because the resistance wasn't, wasn't in the way anymore. So I got the, the resistance down to like a level one. One times 10 is still some suffering. So then I felt some, felt the discomfort and I just felt my fear and it was a thought free experience. I didn't try to get rid of it in any way. I wasn't trying to breathe in calm or breathe out the fear. All I did was feel the fear. Just felt the anxiety, felt the nervousness without trying to get rid of it. And what happens is when that child, that spouse, that emotion gets your complete undivided attention like that, it lets go of you. It runs out of things to say. And so then it went down to a level zero or one. And literally it took me two minutes and I went back out, went on stage and I felt fine. Now, just to outline all of this, you know, I could have done what most people do, which is breathe in calm, breathe out fear, use my intellect to rationalize. I've got this. I know what I'm talking about. They're going to love me, right? Like I could have done that, but that would have been the repression of fear. And six months later, I'd never give another speech again. But instead, I just spent some time feeling my fear and feeling my resistance. It let go of me. It was done without repression. And uh, I felt great. That's awesome. Essentially, you, you let the fear run its course in your body. It sounds like you acknowledged it. When you did that body scan, you, you felt where it was at in your body. It sounds like you let it sit with it and sort of let it run its 10 to 90 second course. Or That's what you described, right? Like the average time that, a, that we feel an emotion. Is that what you said earlier? Right. But I was still going to feel fear because I was going to give a speech. It was going to be with me the whole time, but it's there to actually help me bring my A game to that speech and help me be super present and focused. And I was slightly underprepared for a reason. If you're too prepared, there's not enough fear and you're just going to space out up there. You know, you want to have some fear 
you know, you want to have some fear in everything. Like if there was no fear in love, you know, will he or won't he, um, will we or won't we, like then it's not as interesting. You know, like a life without fear is just going to be boring as hell, you know? So you want to have some fear in everything that you do because um, it'll help you bring your A game. You weren't letting go of the fear. You were just allowing yourself to feel it and allowing that feeling to heighten your ability to do the things that you need to do is what I'm hearing. Is that right? Yeah, right. So back to you being my fear, this was, this was the conversation that I had, even though it wasn't like a literal conversation. It's like, hey, fear, um, I know it's normal and natural for you to be here. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm, I'm feeling that you're really, really strong right now. I can feel you in my chest. I can feel you in my throat. Um, I also notice that I'm resisting you, and that's really causing some problems for me. I'm really sorry. It's disrespectful to you that I'm doing that. I'm going to address the resistance and uh, you know, uh, spend some time with it and become aware of it. Um, so I can set you free from the shackles that you've been in. And then I'm going to spend some time, some intimate time, just feeling you and you and me in 10 minutes, we're going to go on that stage and I'm stronger together than apart with you. It's like, I'm Batman, you're Robin. Like we're going to nail this thing. Right? So then 10 minutes later, me and fear went on stage and with the assistance of fear, I did great. Right. And so don't you feel included? And it's like, oh, my gosh, I've been disrespecting, disrespecting you. I've been resisting you. You don't deserve that. You know, that's a, a long habitual pattern that I have with you as fear. Like I've been fighting a war with you my whole life. And and even after writing a book about you and making it up to you and being the PR director to you, I still notice that I resist you from time to time. So but I'm going to work on that. I'm going to continue to work on that. Like, can you feel how included it is for you when I talk to you this way? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say, actually, just to bring it home, because I've given a lot of examples and it seems a little hodgepodgey right now, that if somebody is out there and they want to have a more honest relationship with fear and they want to stop repressing it and they want to have a fear practice, the first thing that they can do is to change their language about how they talk about fear. That is absolutely hands down the most important step. Can you give an example? Well, if you have kids, let's start from the ground up. If your kid says, I feel afraid, the absolute worst thing that you can do or say to that kid is there's nothing to be afraid of. Because frankly, it's not true. And a kid knows that, you know, the kid innately knows, well, yeah, there is something to be afraid of, but it's, it's fear shaming. It's basically sending a message to that kid that it's not okay to feel fear. It's just in your imagination. It's not even real. Um, so the kid starts to doubt himself and question himself. And you're setting up that kid for a future of self-esteem issues, possibly anger issues, um, irrational fear issues, depression anxiety disorders, and on and on. It is literally the worst thing that you can say to a child. There's nothing to be afraid of because that's absolutely not true. And so don't say it to yourself either. There is something to be afraid of. You know, life is a scary experience. Um, so another thing that you can say 
um, like taking it to kids again, like I had a, a client who had a kid who was afraid of everything. And like getting on a water slide, for example, dad tried to take him on a water slide. And the kid said, I don't want to do it. It's scary. You know, instead of saying to the kid, there's nothing to be afraid of, which is what the father was saying, which is absolutely not true. If he were to say something like, well, yes, the water slide is scary. It's designed to be scary. That's what makes it fun because some people enjoy feeling fear. But if you're not in the mood for fear, then you're not going to enjoy it. So the question is, are you in the mood for fear right now? And the kid will say, no, I'm not in the mood for fear. Okay, then let's not go on the water slide. And then if you change your mind, if you do feel like you're in the mood for fear at some point, then we'll go on the water slide, okay? See, there's no fear shaming there. As adults, the other thing uh, that you can do is back to the example of the boss wants to have a conversation with you, or maybe you want to go and, and do a job interview for a job for which you're slightly underqualified. What you can say to yourself is, instead of there's nothing to be afraid of, I got this, which is not true, right? There is something to be afraid of. So start with that. There is something to be afraid of. You know, this is a scary situation. Um, I know that this is uh, going to be challenging for me. And then you just close your eyes and you spend some time feeling your fear. And if you do this, that fear, it calms right down. Anytime you give fear your undivided love and attention, it's kind of like a child that's been whining and complaining you know, showing up as anxiety, you turn towards that child and give that child some love and consideration. And you're doing this not, you know, the key is you're doing this without trying to calm it down, though. You, you don't turn towards that child and say, okay, I'll give you my undivided love and attention. And then will you shut the hell up, right? <laughs> like, fear's too smart for that. You got to just give it some love and attention without the comma after. You're not trying to calm it down. You're not trying to shut it up. You're just giving it some love, spending some time with it, feeling it, it'll calm down and it'll turn into an asset and an ally. So that's what a fear practice looks like, just spending some quality time with your fear without trying to get rid of it, without trying to calm it down. It's absolutely beautiful. One of the things that comes up for me is, I'm thinking about a specific experience, I was in a relationship and as the relationship came to an end, I, um, she had said something to me and I said, you know, that, that makes me feel like I'm feeling anxiety right now. And then she goes, oh, don't feel anxiety. And I said, no, it's okay. It's just, it's an emotion. It's like flowing through me and it will pass in a minute or two. And I was sharing that with her, um, because I, I wanted to connect over the way that I was feeling. And I remember later on in that day, cause I had to drop some stuff, stuff off at her office I said, hey, if I'm telling you I'm feeling something, it's just like it will pass. I, I, um, what I don't want you to do is ask me to suppress it because I, especially with guys, we have a tendency to do this and it was trying to, something I was trying to unlearn at the time. And, and then she started to say something. I go, what is it? What, or she stopped herself and I said, what is it? And she, she goes, oh, nothing. And then about two minutes later, she said, well, I guess I just didn't want to feel, be, feel responsible for the emotion. And I said, you're, you're not responsible for the emotion, it's just emotion. I'm just feeling it. it. Just it will flow through me and flow out of me, and and so this sort of leads to a question: as we connect more with our emotions, or I've noticed I was I connect with more with my emotions, and I try to express them with other people so that I can connect with them over them, or encourage them to do the same. 
sometimes we run into these situations where we do get people who tell us uh, not to feel things or they, they take on our emotions. How do you suggest a person navigate through that? Well, a couple things. Um, first of all, we've gotten in the habit of calling fear anxiety. You know, anxiety and fear are exactly the same thing. Specifically, anxiety is recirculating fear, but we don't want to call it fear because, especially as a man, it's embarrassing. You know, like the Wall Street CEO executive um, who says he's pickled in anxiety, it's almost a rite of passage. Like he's supposed to be feeling that, right? Otherwise, you think he's not doing a very good job. He would never say I'm pickled in fear. He would, you know, that would be the end of his career. And so a lot of us have just started calling fear anxiety because it's a more socially acceptable term. But it is exactly the same thing. Specifically, anxiety is recirculating fear. So I think it would be more accurate in that moment to say I'm feeling fear. I think that's true. I mean, that's yeah. absolutely true. So my husband and I have a practice where we'll say I'm, I'm feeling afraid, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling angry. And whenever we say that, it's just a kind of a, a sign for our, each other to just say, okay, what does it feel like? You know, where is it coming from? Um, you know, it, it's an emotion to be celebrated. These emotions are here to be celebrated. Like it's, it's interesting. Anytime you can presence yourself and just really feel what you're feeling is a really gorgeous moment. As for your, Girlfriend, I don't know if she still is. No, no, no. This, this is an older relationship, but okay. Um, but it, like, it, it, as you were talking about suppression, I thought about it, and I was curious about your thoughts. Well, not only does she feel worried that she was the cause of that emotion, and sure, she had an influence on it. She was the catalyst, you know. Um, and uh, we just feel so uncomfortable, a lot of us, when we're around other people who are feeling emotion. Like the second somebody says, "I feel sad." You know, we get busy trying to make our friends not be, be sad anymore rather than honoring their emotional moment. You know, we say to children, oh, turn that frown upside down. Um, be happy, right? Again, it's the worst thing that you can say to a child and it's the worst thing, worst thing that you can say to an adult. I call it emotion shaming. I mentioned that before. Um, I remember one time, and, and this is an example of, you know, I'm a, an emotional intelligence specialists, not just a fear specialist, but um, I had a really difficult situation. I had a stalker that was in and out of jail due to, due to the uh, crimes against me. And it was bad. I mean, I, I won't go into details, but uh, the, the latest incident that sent him to jail, you know, a common friend of ours approached me and said, about two weeks later after this incident said, how are you feeling? And I said, I feel really angry. And he said, oh, don't be angry. And he was a healthcare practitioner. He was a therapist. He's like, don't be angry. That'll eat away at your soul. And I said, please don't ask me to repress my emotions in order for you to feel better. You know, I was actually really harsh on him. <laughs> right? I said something like that. Um, please don't rush me. I think I said, please don't try to rush me through my emotions in order for you to feel more comfortable is what I said. And, and that just stopped him in his tracks because he knew, I mean, he's a, he's a shrink, right? He knew 
but it's like we almost can't help ourselves. So he sent me this long email afterwards saying, oh my gosh, that was so out of line of me, you know. But it was really powerful for me to stand my ground and defend my right to be angry. Um, it, it's, it's hard to do. It's a hard shift to make. It's a hard transition to make to just really honor your emotions like that. It's kind of like having a child next to you that nobody wants to be around, that nobody likes. And like, how dare you insult my child? How dare you not? I don't even want to say how dare you because that puts people on the offense. But at, at the same time, sometimes that kind of harsh way of, of treating, like saying to your girlfriend, like maybe even a more aggressive way so that she gets the point. Like, I think that we need to to start holding each other accountable for for emotion shaming. And I'm, you know, doing it in a soft way, doing it in a more aggressive way. I'm for either because this has to stop. This, this emotion uh, shaming and, and the subsequent emotion repression that comes from it is killing us all. I mean, depression is only getting worse and worse. People are uh, either recreational prescription medication, you know, their, their emotions away, their fear away, like Drug addiction is getting worse. Alcoholism. All these things we're doing to not deal with our emotions. It's, it's just crazy. We've got to start taking a stand and drawing a line in the sand and saying, absolutely not. You're not going to shame me for feeling my emotions. And it's very, very powerful, especially for a man to say, I feel afraid. Or I feel sad. You know? Um, but it needs to happen because what we're doing is just absolutely not working. And pretty soon we're all going to be on medication, you know, if we keep this up. Yeah, I definitely hear you. I mean, one of the, the more powerful, I mean, you said so many things that are powerful in this interview, but one of the things that I found very powerful is the exercise you did with a couple where they talked about what they're afraid of. And this can feel counterintuitive, but in my experience, it's when, it's around these places that we actually connect, right? And my guess is that when the two began to talk about what they were afraid of and and where that came from, that actually began a healing process that allowed them to connect in a deeper way. If each partner is open and receptive to this. It's hard to do this if one of the partners is not, not open and receptive. Um, yeah, it is. Um, that particular couple were, you know, they were together for 30 years and uh, they'd had the same argument for practically their whole marriage. And they, they did this exercise once and it was actually really profound. It took them out of crisis and it set in motion the ending of that perpetual argument. I mean, it, it, I mean they did this, I mean, I think maybe 10 minutes once. And it changed everything. And it is really counterintuitive, though. It's counterintuitive for all of us to have anything to do with fear. Feel it, talk about it, um, without trying to get rid of it. it I, I cannot emphasize enough how crucial it is that there isn't a comma after that sentence. It's not like, okay, now let's let go of the fear. Now let's, you know, not let it control us. Now let's kind of put it back in the basement. It has to be out in the sunshine, in the fresh air, and a welcomed, honored part of our life in order for this to work, though. That's the most important part. 
and I know that a lot of people that are listening are um, mental health workers and psychologists and all that. You know, can you resist the urge to put a comma after you're, you know, accepting fear or um, making friends with fear or allowing yourself to feel it and get rid of that appendage that says, okay, but you don't want to let it control your life, but you don't, then you want to let it go. Um, then you want to shake off the excess. You know, shaking off the excess is something that I do. You were talking about um, Bambi, you know, or the, I see this with, with ducks a lot. You know, if they get in an altercation with another duck, they then shake, right? Like I do that too. I do that before speeches, you know, after I do my feeling, my fear, and then I just shake. And I had a, a client once say, you know, fear makes me feel shaky. What should I do about that? I'm like, well, if fear wants to, you to shake, then you should shake. And so we just kind of shook our bodies together. And, uh, you know, if that's what fear wants you to do, then do it. Absolutely. You know, it feels really good. You know, that's another way that you can honor your fear. Yeah, I noticed as I started to do different exercises so that I could connect more deeply through my emotions and then more exercises to try to, to learn to express them in a more full, real, honest way. And again, this is a practice. It's something that I have to work on constantly, especially as a man, because in Western culture, we're so often taught not to feel anything and to suppress our emotions. And, and so for me, like this is definitely definitely is a practice, but I found that um, I was shaking a lot more and uh, I would feel something and I just sort of get the shivers. And once I, if I let myself do that, I felt better afterwards because my instinct initially was to stop the shivering. So I definitely can connect with that. And maybe that could be a great fear practice too. Like however fear is showing up or any emotion for that matter is showing up. Like maybe you, uh, I do this, uh, so these ski camps where I take people skiing and their um, camps to try and um, help them have an intimate relationship with fear. I'll, I'll tell you what, boy, this is interesting. I will facilitate people into having an intimate relationship with their fear and we'll do a dance with fear down the mountain while we're skiing. And I swear to you, I've seen this happen now with hundreds of people because I only started doing this a couple years ago. They're skiing improves by probably 40% just that one run. Like, can you have kind of an intimate physical dance with fear? Like this is a physically embodied experience of having a fear practice when you go skiing. But can you do that when you're going into having that difficult meeting with your boss? Can you have an intimate dance with fear when you're going into do a job interview? Can you have an intimate relationship with fear when you're going through a difficult time with your spouse? Can you help nurture your child to have an intimate relationship with their fear? And notice that the language around that is really, really important. Like you say to a child, okay, you want to go on the water slide? Well, are you in the mood for fear right now? Okay, you're not in the mood for fear. Well, when you're in the mood for fear, then let's go do a dance with fear down that water slide. Like, sounds a little hokey. It sounds a little wooey. Like, come up with your own language. But, you know, you don't want to fear shame a child. Definitely not, because that sets them up for a lifetime of repression. And it may be too late for a lot of us, right? But it's not too late <laughs> for the next generation. Like, my fantasy for the world is that emotional intelligence is taught in elementary school. But emotional intelligence to me 
is very, very different from emotional intelligence that's written about in a lot of popular books. For me, emotional intelligence is not our ability to intellectually understand our emotions and control them. We can't understand our emotions. Some things are not meant to be understood. Our big brains can figure out a lot of things, but I mean, emotions are meant to be felt, not understood or thought about, and they're not meant to be controlled. For me, emotional intelligence that I'm hoping would be taught in elementary school is our ability to feel our emotions in an honest way and, and just feel how that feels, even just saying it. Feel our emotions in an honest way and have them help us come alive. You know, we're headed towards being more like robots than like humans because we're trying to leave our emotions behind. We're trying to control them. We're trying to put our big brains on it. It's like, you know, the, that that image of the future human of this big walking head in our bodies is just a life support system for our big brains. Like it's hard to miss, but it's like, we've got to take our emotions along on this journey. Life is only getting more and more um, frantic and frenetic and, and, and more happens in 24 minutes than happened in our great grandparents era in 24 years. Like it's just not working. We can't just keep repressing our emotions as we continue to have a busier and crazier lives. Like it's just not working. No wonder so many people are depressed and having anxiety disorders. We just are using old archaic models of repression of emotion in a modern era. It's, it's we just can't do it anymore. We've got to go back and have an essential core, honest relationship with our emotions or else we're all, like I said, going to be medicated someday. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great point. There's just, there's an, an immense amount of wisdom that comes from our emotions and our intuition. And the other thing I thought about is just part of like uh, the way that the brain works. I mean, the parts of the brain that deal with emotion are a lot older. They're more primitive. Um, and I don't mean primitive in the sense that they're less valuable. They're just, everything that I've read on, on the subject says that we feel things before we think about them. And I like what you said, that there's, and, and there's something important, like there, there's an evolutionary reason why why that is. And there's this immense value in in our emotions and what they tell us. And for people who are listening to this and they, like a lot of stuff that you're talking about sounds great to them and um, they want to be more connected, they want to have this sort of practice of being more connected to their emotions, more connected to their fear. In addition to the things that you've shared so far, what do you recommend that they do in order to continue to develop this process or practice for themselves? Well, of course, I recommend they read my book, The Art of Fear. And okay. the subtitle is Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do Instead. It really is the missing link. It explains a lot. It explains um, exactly the cause of a lot of mental and psychological, emotional health issues that we face today um, and then what to do about it. It's, it's a hell of a book. I'm really proud of it. Um, I also recommend that if they have a therapist or an influencer in their life that is, uh, fear shaming them or maybe giving advice to let go of their fear or to replace it with something else, um, maybe educate them, ask them, or, or maybe find a different therapist that will be more of a, a less heady kind of uh, controlling 
you know, just find the right therapist is what I'm trying to say. Somebody that will be more of an embodied experience versus a, a heady experience. Of course, you could also call me. This is what I do for a living. Um, and also start a fear practice. Learn how to feel your fear. If you learn how to feel your fear, then the rest will follow. Sadness, anger, unworthiness, jealousy, you name it. You'll all you'll learn how to deal with all of these other strong you know, I put quotes around it, negative emotions. Like I don't see any of these emotions as being negative. I see emotion as just emotion. Like fear, for example, there is no such thing as good fear or bad fear. There's only fear. But however you deal with the fear determines whether it shows up in a good way or a bad way in your life. So just spend some time learning how to feel your fear, be intimate with the fear. And so the levels are resistance to fear, like just try that on physically right now what that feels like. Then there's accepting of fear. But accepting, you know, why stop there at mere acceptance? You know, accepting kind of still reeks of it is what it is. There's nothing I can do about it, right? It is a step in the right direction, but that's not what you want to go for with fear. Feeling your fear. You know, there's there's uh, something that happens when you get to that place because feelings are in your body, like these, these emotions are in your body. Next thing you know, you're in your body more. And I know a lot of people uh, say that they would rather be out of their head and more in their body. So you start a fear practice, you learn how to feel your fear. And next thing you know, you're in your body a lot more, which is a better place from which to perform from, certainly if you're an athlete or probably, you know, in a lot of places. Uh, and then why stop there, though? Then have an intimate relationship with fear. Because when you're feeling your fear, there's still separation between you and it. You're like subject-object, like me feeling like a cat, right? Like the fur of a cat, that's level three, is you feeling fear. But when you're intimate with fear, you know, you become like lovers, you know, where there's giving and receiving at the same time. Um, there's no separation between you and the fear, like that's actually what I felt during my ski career. I had an intimate relationship with fear. I loved feeling fear. And it was that relationship with fear, and it took me a long time to figure this out, right? That made me the best in the world at my sport. And it, it's when you look at somebody that you admire or see as being very successful, like be curious, are they having an intimate relationship with their fear as well? We're starting to see this more and more. I mean, I'm very, really paying attention to people's language, um, you know, when they talk about fear. And I've seen, you know, certainly like Richard Branson has an intimate relationship with his fear. Um, athletes like uh, Laird Hamilton, arguably the best big wave surfer in the world, he has an intimate relationship with fear. It's like we're starting to see this more and more. Like the question is kind of the riddle, the koan for you is can you have an intimate relationship with fear? someday like that's where you're headed um and it's a it's a practice you know there's many uh tips that i can give you to do it certainly having a fear practice and spending some time um just noticing if you're resisting your fear is very helpful and then spending your time feeling your fear you know just keep playing around with that have that be your daily practice like if you meditate do this during the time that you meditate meditate instead just feel any kind of fear or, or unpleasant emotion and have an intimate relationship with it a few minutes a day and just watch how your life turns around fast you talked earlier about how fear traumatized you or, or you developed ptsd 
And you talked about how fear embodied you and allowed you to become the best in the world at what you were doing. At what point do you feel like your engagement or interaction or relationship with fear began to change where it became debilitating? I find that you can get away with the repression of fear for about 10 years tops. And, uh, you know, you, you can see like gymnasts burnt out at age 17. Um, like if a kid was fear shamed at age four, by age 14, they have an anxiety disorder. Um, 10 years is about what I see as being the tipping point. I see a lot of uh, Olympic athletes too that, that um, start to have a lot more injuries, like ski racers, for example, when they hit about age 30. And uh, it's not because they're getting older or in any less shape. It's because of that rigid body that I told you about. Like um, somebody that starts a business that's a scary endeavor, you know, 10 years later, all of a sudden they can't sleep. They have horrible insomnia. So 10 years later. So I, I got to that point in my career about 10 years into it. And, um, you know, I didn't have to quit being a professional athlete. I, you know, I, all I had to do past a certain point was show up at a party and drink a can of Red Bull and I'd get paid. Right. But I quit because I just felt so bad. And the biggest issue for me was burnout. I started to hate skiing. I was so burnt out. I, I thought that I was burnt out on the skiing, but really I was burnt out on the war that I had going on with fear that was being carried on in my unconscious mind. And so I quit to try and figure out what the hell had gone wrong. And I, um, I don't believe that you learn from experience. I believe you learn from reflecting on the experience, you know, and I started reflecting on my experience 15 years as a career athlete and I realized I'd learned absolutely nothing except for hedonism and the gratification of my massive ego, right? And so I, you know, I started studying with a Zen master to try and figure out what had gone wrong and, and could I fall in love with skiing again, you know? It just was bizarre to me that I hated it so much. And, and uh, within, I mean, within an hour of meeting my teacher, I realized, oh, okay, I get it. It was as obvious as the nose on my face. I've been repressing fear and it was messing up my life. And uh, I mean, I, I literally feel like I've devoted my life to making it up to fear. Like the book that I wrote is just a huge apology. You know, fear is, it just doesn't deserve that, this. It, it, it's, it's one of the greatest experiences we have here on planet Earth. and and it's almost collectively hated and and resented by every single human on the planet. It's just it's just I see it as a entity. Um, it's just uh, so I'm I'm basically devoting my life to trying to turn this around, not only for myself but for all of humanity. And I work every single day to have a healthy, honest relationship with fear. I, you know, I wrote the book about it, and I still. Every once in a while, like with that speech, all of a sudden, oh, I've been resisting fear again. <laughs> like I wrote the book about this. Oh <laughs> my gosh. So it, it still just creeps up and surprises me. But whenever I start feeling bad, I just stop and I, I do a couple minutes of fear practice, spending some time feeling whatever it is that I'm feeling. And anything that I feel that feels awful beneath it is fear. 
um, then it, I feel better almost immediately. Kristen, this is awesome. I know that there's a lot of people listening to this who definitely relate and connect to the things that you're sharing. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're interested in learning more about Kristen, everything that she's done, her book, uh, her coaching, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about her and her work more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been fun, Christopher. Thank you. It's dating coach Chris Lona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.